Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. The Dry Cleaner Cast is a series of podcasts that look at terrorism and espionage in the 21st century. The podcast is a companion to my short film, The Dry Cleaner. We hope by helping people further understand the complexity and sensitivity of the issues that surround terrorism, we can be a part of the necessary debate that will help defeat terrorism in the near future. Today I'm joined by a special guest. His name is Yaya Jatafanusi. Yaya is currently the Director of Analysis for the Centre on Sanctions and Illicit Finance at the Foundation for the Defence of Democracies. Previously, he was an Economic and Counterterrorism Analyst at the CIA. And he is also a host of a great podcast called The Rhythm of Wisdom. On today's episode, we'll be discussing what it was like being a Muslim working for the CIA on counterterrorism. And also, we will discuss how best to undermine the terrorist narrative. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Yaya, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. And I, I have to say, I have to start off by saying I really like your introduction theme music. Thank it's you. the best, <laughs> the best, the best, <laughs> very, very well done. I love, I, I love it. I love it. It's, it's probably one of the best that, that I've heard in a while. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. I'm Andy, Andy Bird, who uh, created that music for me. I'd be very happy to hear that. It's a big shout out to Andy. Thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to join the CIA? Sure. Um, wow. If you really want me to, to, to give you the, the full story, um, you know, uh, which I'll start on a personal level. I guess I I separate my life uh, into three periods, uh, three periods of transformation. First, uh, the first part of my life, uh, sort of a cultural transformation, a spiritual transformation, and then a professional transformation. Um, so the first period, I guess, is, is my youth. I have to say a little bit about, you know, what made what makes me, my parents. Um, my father is from West Africa uh, from Sierra Leone. He came over to the United States in the 60s uh, and by the 70s met my mother uh, who's who's African-American and they met in California and I was raised pretty much born and raised in California um, and lived there except for a small part of my childhood. I lived in Nigeria, actually northern Nigeria for a year. Um, And as we'll get into that sort of had an interesting influence in terms of my profession and me being very focused on international affairs and aware of of the cultural differences in the world. Um, um, and I grew up, I should probably mention, um, you know, I grew up in a, uh, I, I wasn't Muslim. My family was not Muslim and that sort of happened later on. But the, the first part of my life, interestingly, the, the cultural transformation happened through, um, through music. Um, I'm a, a child of the 80s and 90s, and the big influence in my young adulthood and teenagehood was hip-hop music. So groups like Public Enemy, KRS-One, and also the influence of figures like uh, Malcolm X in the, in the music. You know, this was, of course, you know, 20, 30 years later, but Malcolm X was sort of a, a reborn in hip-hop culture. So this impacted me, I think, in the way I saw the world. Um, this was also during, there was a backdrop of, 
of uh, you know movies like Spike Lee's. But Spike Lee's movies do the right thing. Um, the Rodney King beating, which actually happened blocks from my house, walking distance from my home. Um, I, I remember when that actually happened. Um, so my youth was not, you know, I wasn't raised in a culture that would make you think I would join the CIA. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let me skip to the other the other uh, uh, shifts in my life, which might explain that. So the the next one was, I guess, the spiritual transformation, which happened in college. Um, and a respect for spirituality was propelled by music. You know, hip hop was the sort of culture that has you, you know, question things and be open to um, other ideas, other thoughts. And I think I grew sort of spiritually. So that was, you know, in my 20s, I converted to Islam, uh, sort of solidified my identity as, as a Muslim, a Muslim in America. Um, and uh, I'll get into sort of that sort of ideology a bit, but just to sum up the answer to your question, um, professionally, you know, I took a circuitous route to to the CIA in terms of, you know, where I was. I studied economics uh, in school and international affairs. And what happened was at one point I was um, looking to get into uh, foreign policy. Uh, specifically, I was pursuing the State Department, the U.S. State Department. And I sort of uh, just by happenstance met someone who um, gave me the card, the business card of a recruiter. And interestingly, this recruiter, this was, uh, I'll just mention this, not that it matters so much, but this was an, an African-American woman who is a um, analyst, a senior analyst in the Directorate of Intelligence. And that's the part of the uh, CIA that deals with analysis, right? That collects all the information, all the um, sources of intelligence, whether they're clandestine or even open source, and, um, um, com and processes all of it to provide analysis for senior policymakers. And uh, this woman, as I talked to her on the phone, she told me about uh, uh, the CIA, about what it's like to be an analyst, and um, and by you know by this time I think you know, I had sort of matured, uh, and we can go into how that happened uh, later. But I had matured and started to see national security uh, beyond. I saw beyond the national security myth, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the CIA is a very sort of mythical <laughs> organization. There's a lot of myth about it. Um, and, you know, coming from, coming from Berkeley, I went to school at UC Berkeley. Um, you can imagine that I had a lot of preconceived notions, but I had sort of taken some of that on and was looking at national security from the standpoint of, um, every society needs to sort of secure, secure itself. There's a, the importance of, of, of peace and security in the world. Um, and my, see my role in it. So I was very, I was open to it, uh, even though I hadn't thought about it before. And I, um, I joined, uh, I joined in uh, 2005 and uh, I signed up as a, I was hired as an economic analyst, but eventually I, I actually soon after I was hired, I became a counterterrorism analyst and we can talk a little bit about that. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, talk about myths in the CIA, so you're telling us that Santa Claus is not a CIA agent? Uh, <laughs> well, um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's so much, right? There's there's so much. It's good. To, it's funny when I tell people, uh, mm. you know, it's not that I broadcast it, but now that you know, it's more open out, open there. It's interesting to see people's uh, reactions. I haven't fielded too many UFO questions though, thankfully. Uh, I'm sure that will come after this interview. <laughs> oh, trips to Area 51 and all. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to be uh, a Muslim working for the CIA. Were there any particular things about, you know, working for the CIA as a Muslim that surprised you? Mm. 
Well, I must say that, you know, that's one thing that I, I had no idea. Like, right, I didn't know anyone. You know, I, I, I knew knew I know, knew no one uh, uh, who was in the CIA beforehand. So I, I really didn't know what to expect. The biggest surprise actually happened before I was hired. Um, and I went on an interview and I actually, it was interesting. I had two interviews with two different offices, two different analytic offices. Um, so these were sort of senior analysts interviewing me. And one, I went and, uh, uh, you know, talk to these guys in the office and whatever they interviewed me. And uh, the other one uh, actually took me, uh, he interviewed me for this other office and actually took me to the cafeteria for, you know, for lunch, a light lunch or to, to drink coffee. And as I walked through the halls, it was interesting, even being in the cafeteria, I saw more diversity than I expected. Um, and at one point, the thing that surprised me was I saw a, a visibly Muslim woman. Uh, she actually had a hijab. Uh, she looked like she was probably African-American. American, and I was stunned. <laughs> you know, I was like, here I am walking through the, the halls of, of this, uh, this, this agency, and there's a Muslim woman in a hijab. Uh, so I had a lot of, uh, you know, preconceived notions that were really sort of upended. Um, and for me, and, and I don't like to make a point of this, but just for clarification, you know, you know, I would say I'm a practicing Muslim, right? I mean, there's lots of Muslims, so I, I pray, I fast. Um, so when I first started, interestingly, um, you know, I thought about that. You know, if I'm someone who prays, how's that going to work? Is that going to be uncomfortable? And interestingly, um, you know, uh, I it, it it wasn't because I met people. In fact, I had an office made. My first office, I shared an office with a gentleman who's a friend, you know, still a friend to this day, who was a a very committed Christian. You know, I'd say he was, uh, you know, he was a young guy, um, but he was, you know, he's he was the type of person who, you know, probably would, you know, volunteer at the church and would go to Bible study. Um, so he was my first office mate. He and I shared an office. And the first day I just said to him in a non, you know, confrontational way, just very casually, I said, oh, you know, I actually, uh, you know, I, I, I pray. I'm, I'm Muslim. Um, would you mind if sometimes in the office, you know, I close the door and pray, you know, is that a, was, was that a big deal? And he was like, no, no, fine, go ahead. Um, you know, and then we started talking about faith and he, he sh shared how he was Christian. Um, and I actually found during my career, uh, and I was there for about seven years, I had a lot of close bonds with other other people who would consider themselves religious, you know, or maybe committed to their religion, to their faith, uh, whether they were Jews, whether they were Christian. Um, you know, often I bonded with them the most and, and, and formed strong friendships. So I think there's something about that sort of common thread of, of being someone who, who is religious that made it um, easier. And I'm not just not trying to say that everything was, um, you know, hunky dory and, <laughs> you know, that, that, that there weren't uh, issues, uh, any issues or discomfort sometimes. But in general, you know, I found uh, the people that I worked with to be very accommodating and uh, and friendly to me personally. Can you tell us a bit about like your career in the CIA Any kind of like highlights and things, you know, obviously things that you can talk about? But... Sure, sure. So as I mentioned, um, so I was in the DI, uh, what well, they called it the DI at the time, Directorate of Intelligence. So I was hired as an economic analyst and, uh, you know, an economic analyst, you know, is, is looking at economic issues, uh, economic developments and, and, and trends and, and specific activity that might impact uh, U.S. national security. Um, and I did that. I really enjoyed that work for the most part. Well, not for the most part. I enjoyed the work. It was, I thought it was a good job. It was interesting. It was stimulating. Um, I, as an analyst, the bread and butter 
is writing and briefing. In fact, when I went to the first interview, that was the thing that the, the senior analysts told me that I was surprised. They said, if you don't like to write, you're don't, <laughs> you know, this is not the job for you. You spend most of the time writing um, based on your analysis, right? Based on, on your research. So uh, my focus was to produce reports, uh, which, uh, which would go out to uh, members of the government and also sometimes to brief them. Um, so, but there was a switch that happened for me early in my, my career it was during that first year. Um, as, again, this is 2005 and 2005. And this may re resonate with, with you and, and probably many of your li listeners in 2005, there was the seven, seven bombings in, yeah. in London, correct. Um, and I'll never forget that day. Um, uh, I was attending a training session. Uh, and I remember just showing up to work. Of course, you know, there's a the time difference here. Uh, showing up to the class, and they had the news on, the video on. And uh, it was, of course, the news in London. And I, you know, I showed up because I hadn't listened to the news in my car. So I said, oh, what's going on? What's going on? And so, you know, they talked about, you know, people were telling me about the bombing. So, of course, we were really sort of, you know, fixated on on the events. And what struck me about that situation was as, as the facts came out, uh, about what happened and who, about the, the, the bombers, uh, you know, how they were four British, mostly British born, British raised, uh, young men, right? I think the oldest was maybe 30, men in their 20s. And I was 30 at the time. One was a convert, right? A Jamaican born convert. And so as we found out this information, this, you know, just on the news, just the public information about it, um, it really made me think about the the problem of terrorism more. It sort of hit home more. Um, and, you know, I actually have family that's in London. Um, I have some family members on, on my dad's side. And so my first instinct was, oh, wow, I wonder, you know, my, is my family okay? You know, they ride the tube every day. Um, and I found out that they were, that they were fine. But then it made me think about, okay, well, what if, you know, it, 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 so, that my family was fine, but you know, 50 some people were killed and so many people wounded. And it made me think about the perpetrators and the fact that I understand their identity, right? I'm a, I'm a Western Muslim. I'm someone who converted to Islam in my twenties. Um, I started to think about how I could perhaps use my understanding, my sort of culture, my understanding of the cultural context and nuance to prevent attacks like this. Um, so I felt, I felt this very personal drive and it didn't happen right away. I didn't just become a counterterrorism analyst. I had friends who were, uh, what we call CT, I'll use CT for short, CT analysts, right? And they had encouraged me before. They said, Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, you're, you know, you're Muslim. You'd be a great, uh, CT analyst. And I thought, I don't really know that much about terrorism, right? I mean, most, despite what we think, you know, most Muslims don't go around thinking about, Oh, should they be counterterrorism analysts? I was hired because of my, 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 my travel, my, uh, my experience in the world. You know, I had traveled a lot, uh, in, in college, um, and, uh, and my economic uh, expertise. So that's what I was hired for. But I decided that I'd, I'd see if I could find a way to contribute, uh, to the effort to stop. Uh, terrorist, and that led me to eventually um, get a different job within the agency, and I worked at the National Counterterrorism Center. So the NCTC is this multi-agency center, right, where you have analysts from from CIA, from FBI, from DIA, all these all these agencies working together. Um, and so I was assigned there for 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 quite a while. 
And, um, and I was first assigned to the Al Qaeda team. Uh, and so my focus was along with many analysts was focused on, I was focused on, um, uh, you know, analyzing threats, uh, understanding, uh, networks, uh, terrorist networks, um, tracking, uh, you know, individuals that were involved in plotting, understanding, uh, Al Qaeda's, especially at the time, Al Qaeda's, uh, uh, leadership and infrastructure. So that's, that was my day to day work for, for the bulk of my time at the agency. And a few highlights, uh, you know, I, I sometimes like to mention this because there's a funny, uh, story in terms of how it, uh, how it occurred. Um, one day I was actually asked to brief the president at the time. This was uh, during President Bush's uh, term, towards the end of his term. And um, he came uh, to uh, NCTC. And I, um, you know, and several analysts were asked to brief him, uh, you know, on counterterrorism threats, counterterrorism issues. And I was one of those analysts. So this was really a, a, a big deal. And the interesting thing was that um, this briefing happened on the same day of a major Islamic holiday, the Eid al-Adha. And um, so it was interesting. The briefing was scheduled in the afternoon. So I, that morning, I went uh, into D.C. and I, I went to the Eid prayer, uh, which you know happens in the morning. It's like a big prayer, a very huge thing, people from all over. So I went to that. And then, um, uh, I, then I went on to work and I briefed President Bush. Um, so, uh, so that was great. And I had the opportunity to do that and other sort of senior member, uh, levels of, um, of the administration and, uh, the Bush administration and the Obama administration as well. What was that? I suppose, what was that like, uh, you know, briefing the president of the United States? That must have been quite something. Yes. Um, you know, uh, it was, um, it's interesting because, I mean, that's one thing I think about working in, uh, in, intelligence, right? As an Intel analyst, you know, the one thing I can say that I, that I think can't compare in another job, right? You know, in, in academia and in research, um, no matter how obscure your topic, you know, you, you know, you never know when your issue is going to be important. And you can pretty much guarantee that there is an audience for what you are writing about, what you're briefing about. Um, the reason is because, you know, policymakers are all exposed to the press. Everyone is exposed to what's happening, um, you know, what, what they read in the, the Post or the Times. So the intel analysts are drawing from classified sources as well as open press sources, right? They're, they're um, evaluating what is being collected upon, right? Whether it's through, um, you know, technical means or human source collection. Uh, and so you find that policymakers are interested in that. They're interested in, in hearing from, you know, from people who are all source analysts, as I'd say. Um, so personally, in terms of briefing a high level person, um, you know, you get practice. It doesn't happen. That's not something that most people would do in their first few months on the job, of course. Um, you know, I, I did have some practice briefing other uh, policymakers before that. Um, so you, you, you feel a sense of uh, wanting to be accurate in your assessments, um, of being very clear. Uh, in terms of what you what you say and responding to questions, um, uh, so it was you know it was a great experience uh, you know something that I look at as as the highlight of my professional career. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, let's let's. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about 
terrorism and the terrorism we're witnessing today. Um, and you know, based on your counter-terrorism experience, can you just give us sort of an overview of the threat posed by terrorist groups such as Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram and obviously ISIS? Yes. Um, I mean, so first, uh, I think what I'll say is just lay out the understanding their threat. Yeah. Um, you know, that those those sorts of groups um, and, and their origin. You know, if I were to describe those groups, I would say the key thing in understanding them, their approach, their strategy is, um, you know, they're Islamist and they're jihadist. And Islamist thinking is, you know, the type of where, you know, uh, an organization or an individual believes in, in, in imposing political governance prescribed by a, a narrow understanding of Islam. And in the case of these organizations, it's of a particular view of, of Islam and Islamic Sharia. Um, uh, it's, it's Salafist in its orientation and, and we can talk about what that means. But so again, politically imposing, uh, imposing this political governance based on this understanding of Sharia from a very Salafist perspective. Um, because, and that's important to note, right? I mean, you can actually be, there are Salafists who aren't violent. Uh, but, it, but again, Al Qaeda, um, Boko Haram, uh, ISIS, Islamic State, ISIL, you know, they, they subscribe to Salafi understanding of Islam and, and Islamic law and scripture. Um, so they're, they're Islamist, they're Salafist, uh, but they're jihadists. They see themselves as vanguards of a fight for, uh, in this fight around the globe to ins- impose is- is Islamism. Um, and they see the presence of anyone, governments, um, uh, individuals, ideologies who don't believe in that narrow view as the enemy. It's very clear from their perspective. Um, and the important thing to note is they see this conflict, right? The concept, jihadist conflicts, which are happening around the world and jihadist attacks. They see this conflict is equal to the battles of the, the early history of, 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 of Muhammad, the prophet, of the, compa- of the companions and early followers. So if, they're, if you had violence back then, they're equating the violence that they're doing with, with uh, the, the, the precedent, as they see it, uh, of, of violence. So they see themselves as, again, part of this, um, this vanguard that places, they place themselves uh, with the legacy of early Islam from their perspective. Um, and I should probably say, I mean, we can get into the, the groups themselves. So this, the ideology, you know, it's been around, um, you know, this didn't just happen in the nineties. It didn't just happen with, uh, the war in Afghanistan in the, in the, in the eighties against, uh, with the Soviets and the, uh, quote unquote, so-called Mujahideen. Um, uh, you know, this, this has really been prevalent in some circles in Muslim countries and Muslim populations as, as Muslims, were engaging colonialism, right? You had a lot of reactions, reformist reactions. You had a lot of different reactions to how 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 Muslims should see um, the West. What you know, at the time they were colonial powers, and the problem, the the issue with these groups is that there's this mix, right? There's this Islamist ideology, which again has been around, and in in many ways, in many times, it's been dormant. But when this Islamism anchors itself and gets ignited by conflict, opportunities of conflict, and I mean conflict of physical battle. When it you know gets ignited by that 
along with this cross-pollination also, right? Cross-pollination of different fighters from different parts of the world, you know, sharing sort of Islamist ideas, Islamist ideology, and Islamist struggles. And thinking about the three groups you mentioned, we can see that. Al-Qaeda did grow out of, you know, did the, the leaders of Al-Qaeda in the 90s and early 2000s came out of the battles in Afghanistan, if you're talking about Osama bin Laden, right? Came, came out of that battlefield. So you had Islamism, you had Salafism, uh, but they were sort of incubated uh, or they, they, they grew out of the actual fighting of conflict and then began to expand. There was this cross-pollination, right, of, of fighters who had gone to Afghanistan and, and were in the region. Um, and so, so that was ignited and where they started to have training camps. They had safe haven in Afghanistan and were able to plot attacks around the globe, taking their attention again, mostly to the United States, um, but other, other parts of the West and other, other governments as well. Um, if you talk about ISIS, we can sort of fast forward a little bit, but again, you had Islamist ideology in, in, with the fighters in Iraq and Syria, right? The vacuum of there no longer being a dictator uh, in, in Iraq, um, the instability in, in Syria, you know, again, this is cut, this is the opportunity here to, to sort of ignite the conflict and then drawing people from across the globe when there's this, this vacuum. And then when a city falls, when Mosul falls, when you know, these cities fall and they're able to attract, um, followers, attract foreign fighters under this idea, right? There's this, there's this idea which they, they pull from Islamic history, this idea of, of making hijra, which is migration, which historically, and I, and I guess you can stop me if I'm getting too much no, into no, the- This is great. This is great. Okay. So, so, so this is a great example of what Salafi jihadists do, Mm. right? So during the time of, of, of the prophet, peace be upon him, um, there was persecution of, of the early Muslims in Mecca. They weren't a very sort of strong group, um, religious persecution, right? For, for, you know, for practicing their faith. And so eventually, uh, Muhammad and his followers were driven out and left and they went to Medina, uh, with in this, in, in Arabia, right? It's, uh, you know, so, you know, a few hundred miles away, several hundred miles away. Um, and, uh, so that was known as the Hijra. That's when the Islamic calendar starts. And so that is pointed to as a model from the South, from the Salafi jihadist perspective, because once the, after the Hijra happened, that's when you had battles. That's when, you know, because of the, after the persecution, there was, um, you know, later there was given the, the, um, the allowance to, to fight. And this was after the, you know, the Muslims had been sort of practicing and, and preaching for, you know, for 13 years before, before this even happened. So, the Salafi jihadists point to this as a precedent and say that Muslims around the world should leave wherever they are. If they're not under a uh, Islamic, quote unquote, Islamic government, they'll leave, they should leave and they should join band together and then fight to implement uh, an Islamic state. And, and, and they, they liken the current governments of the world, uh, to, uh, as the same as the, um, the tribes of Mecca that were the, 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 that were fighting the early Muslims. So this sort of message resonates, right? So, um, so if you look at ISIS, right, that ability to have land and then to draw fighters, um, because of this conflict, it's, it's what sort of drives the growth of a group like this. Boko Haram, smaller scale, but there's also something very interesting. 
um, in terms of these, this ingredient of Salafi, Salafist ideology and conflict. So Boko Haram started, um, well, it grew out of, I'd say it grew out of what was happening in northern Nigeria in the 90s. So Boko Haram is in Nigeria, northern Nigeria. Most, most of your listeners, I'm sure, know about it, right? But in the late 90s, there was a growth in northern Nigeria in particular. Northern Nigeria was poorer, has always been, always been poorer. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, corruption, unfortunately, there are a lot of, there's so much corruption within Nigerian governments on the local level, you know, uh, uh, and nationally, of course, uh, at this time. And there was a big call for for Sharia um, law, as it was understood um, amongst some of the folks there. So in the 90s, in the early 2000s, you did have a growth of of, of Salafist Islam uh, being uh, understood and and sort of um, integrated. But what happened with Boko Haram, Boko Haram and its leader, Muhammad Yusuf, in the early 2000s, um, wasn't necessarily very violent. You know, they weren't really expanding or anything like that. But in what you had in Nigeria is you had sectarian tensions. You had fights between Muslims and Christians. You had the police and the military, the Nigerian police come and really crack down. And uh, you, you had, it sort of morphed into a very more confrontational, more violent group, right? So that conflict, that idea of that, the, the opportunity of conflict ignited Boko Haram to then become more global because it then connected with uh, Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb uh, for resources and training and became more focused on bomb attacks and attacking, attacking targets. So you had to, to sort of close this up. This, these main ingredients with these groups, right, of their Salafi, their Islamists and Salafi leanings, um, which connected with the conflict experience, the opportunity to engage in battle, and these groups turned their attention to, because, because of their narrow understanding of what Islam is and who the enemy is, um, uh, you know, they turned their attention to, to the West. Uh, to the governments within their lands that uh, that don't support them, um, and and the threat to to answer the question. So, what is the threat? I mean, the threat, you know, the threat is maybe twofold. Uh, and I see this, and let me answer from the perspective of a, of a Muslim, you know, a Muslim American. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of violence in the world. You know, a lot of times, you know, people will use the example of, hey, you know, you're you're more likely to die. In a car accident, then you are, uh, you know, an ISIS attack, right? I mean, that's true. Um, so, so yeah, that that's a given. But that's not the threat that I'm, you know, that's not the issue. The the issue is that, you know, for me, from a Muslim perspective, that there is a group here. They have violent intentions. They want to wreak havoc. They they they're fighting for political for certain political aims, um, and they are fed by they're they're pointing to the religion that I have as the justification for their action. So they they're creating havoc and insecurity. They're working to you know indiscriminately you know in many times uh, whether it's indiscriminate or strategic. They're looking to cause havoc, and that's uh, from a Muslim perspective, right? That's you know is it, Islam is is it's about peace, but it's also about sort of security in terms of you know, not being disturbed. And so, so I see that there's there's a very physical threat, and we can see it in the attacks, whether they've been big attacks like 9/11 or knife attacks or or, or whatever. Uh, but the other threat, which is deeper, that people don't talk much about, and this is where I think bringing a a, a Muslim perspective to to this issue is 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 poignant. I think because. 
there's a psychological threat here. If you look at what's happened over the years. So someone like me who converted, I converted to Islam um, as a young man. For me now, all what attracted me to the religion, what I identify with it, uh, how I identify with it, it has it is now the public discourse is is really the opposite of what I experienced. So there's like this psychological thing that's going on. And you could say, yeah, the media is, is covering it, it maybe too much and, and people sort of enlarge the threat on some level. Yeah, that that happens, right? There, there's fear mongering that, that happens. Um, but really, the, you know, the, the, this, this, this has been strategic. These, these, uh, these groups aim to create this sort of tension. This ha and they, they want people, they want, actually want Muslims to see that they, e they have to make a choice, that they, they are going to either join, if they don't join, particularly with ISIS. I mean, this is ISIS, the way ISIS thinks and how they, uh, what they proclaimed that if you are not joining them, if you are not either going where they are or acting out violently wherever you are, and whether it's in the West or, you know, fighting against governments that, that don't agree with them, if you're not doing that, you are an enemy and you can be killed. So this whole, the discourse of what it means to be Muslim, if I'm concerned, if I'm someone who believes in this faith, you know, now the, the, the whole conversation, the whole image of what Islam is, has really been been warped. And to me, that's a threat. That's I'm not happy about that as someone who 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 follows and who believes in 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 my faith. So the threat is is it even goes beyond the threat of violence um, that these folks are, are causing and they're attracting. And I don't know if if you know, maybe that's another issue, but, you know, they're attracting people based on this call, this religious call, which really resonates with people. But we can, you know, that's a, a deeper talk. Yeah, well, it seems to me that they're trying to push a clash of civilizations narrative, and mm -hmm. that appears to attract people um, yeah. both politically and religiously, I guess, doesn't it? It does. And I'd say that... A critical thing that often we don't think about, uh, although I think it's I think it's plainly plain for us to see, what do, what attracts people, particularly young people. Most people are attracted um, to a big mission, right? Mm -hmm. People are looking for purpose. People like to do something big, and religion. It's not necessarily uh, Islam or an Islamic thing. Um, in general, religion. People feel very strongly about religion. Religion is very close to them. So it's very easy for them to paint a clash of civilization uh, um, dichotomy, right? When when they can point to data points, they can point to a few data points. Now, it doesn't matter if there's a better understanding of this, but if, if they can pull on an identity where Muslim is seen as the underdog, right? Where Muslim is seen as oppressed, um, right? They can pull, they can play on that and they can, um, they can paint the picture that, um, defense of religion is needed, that that's what's at stake. Remember, they, they have their own narrative and the narrative is what we're dealing with right now with Iraq going on, with Afghanistan, that what we're dealing with is the same as what the prophet dealt with. And so you Muslim, you need to get up and fight and join this mission. Um, without th that sort of just very basic logic, um, if it's not 
filtered, if it's not challenged, right, if there's not critical thinking and critical analysis about the argument, um, it's very easy to latch on to that because, hey, you see your group as weak. Um, you, your identity is weak. So you latch on to that. So, um, uh, you know, and, and I think even from the perspective of someone who, you know, grew up, you know, grew up, you know, as a, I mean, I'm, I'm African-American, right? If I didn't make that, that plain, right? Um, so I, I understand how issues of identity when you're a minority in, in a particular, um, in a particular country, because one of the things we're seeing now, right, is Muslims from the West, from the U.S., from Europe, wanting to go to make hijra, right? That's what they're doing. They're making hijra, getting families there. They're settling down. It's not just to go just to fight. And I mean, this idea of joining a state, leaving their, what they believe is their persecution in the West to join. I mean, that narrative is very, um, can be very compelling. So the, the question is, how could that be countered? And, uh, you know, how do you do that? But that's another question. Yeah, no, that's a big topic. That one we'll probably try to tackle that a bit. Um, quick thing, because um, it, what, what's interesting with what we're just saying in the sense of it's, so this sort of narrative is sort of providing a purpose for people's lives. Um, and, you know, from what I've, when you look at um, the kind of people who perpetrate terrorist atrocities and things like that, they kind of, they, they, there's no, they, they seem to kind of come, they could be all sorts of things. Some of them are doctors, some of them are, um, mm, you know, right. some of them have come from retail. I think there was a guy um, from the UK who was from Portsmouth and working previously in a clothes shop in a very low-level job. Um, then, you know, you get converts who, who know very little about the religion, who sort of, you know, bought into this sort of narrative and now suddenly um, they kind of feel galvanised about something. Um, mm. what, what kind of people have you, you know, from your experience, what kind of people are attracted to these groups? Yes. Um you know, it's it's the the recruit base is diverse, mm. and that's important. Um, I think often we want to try to categorize and come up with a simple. Some people would say a radicalization profile or radicalization process. It's not that simple, um, and in fact, it's important to understand because you know, you know, I'm not saying uh, well, it, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a, understood that. Um, that people latch on to this simply because they are, you know, in poverty or, you know, they need a job or whatever. I mean, those issues are, are there for so many people that, yeah. that I don't think is the driver. In fact, uh, I think often you found, you pointed to it, right? The fact of people who are doctors and engineers, you have, uh, often, in fact, I think there was a study. I, I maybe I can forward it to you later. Mm. Um, I forget which institution, um, it was a, uh, a well-known institution here in the States, I'm forgetting. Uh, but that did a study and found that most of the recruits to for ISIS um, you know, are more educated and at a higher uh, income income level than the the folks in their country and than their general population. So it's not a question of you know, people just don't have jobs and uh, that's what makes them join these sorts of groups. Uh, I think the the issue, the thing about religion is it it's and it's attractive and it engages all types of, of, of people. Right. I mean, that's the thing about, re, 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 you know, you, you get your religion. And I'm again, I'm speaking to someone who is a religious person. 
Um, religion is otherworldly. Religion mm. has you, th- you know, thinking outside of your current circumstances, right? It has you thinking about the next life and it has you thinking about, so, so it's going to attract on a human level. Religion is. So if you are in conflict, if you, um, want to attract people, people can use religion in a way that does galvanize across income levels, across ethnicities, ethnicities, right? Because in ISIS, you have people of, of probably every race from just about every corner of the world. Um, so, so it's this appeal, which is very strong, but I, I can't end on that because I don't want to convey that. Well, you know, the problem is religion, you know, that, well, that's no. What, no, I mean, look, you could, you could say the same thing of socialism um, during the Cold War. I mean, a lot of people were inspired by, you know, sort of communism, united people from all parts of the world. You know, ideologies do that. I think it's, I don't know what the, you know, what is, it, it, you know, people want uh, meanings to their lives, don't they? I think we all do in some way. Right, right. And some people, you know, people find different things. Um, often, in, and I think what the this, the Al-Qaeda and the, the, the Islamists and jihadists, uh, resonance is it is very clear and it is very simple right and often we forget that you know the best messages whether you're talking about advertising whether you're talking about whatever you're talking about or, or film perhaps yeah. i don't know yeah. uh you know if you have a clear message you know you're going to get uh um, wider adoption wider yeah. people you know, a wider amount of people listening to it and understanding it. Um, and the, thus far, this sort of Salafi jihadist argument, yeah, it's very, it's very clear. It's very to the point. It answers certain questions. It's very, you know, compact and, and neat, right? So if you're, if you don't have critical thinking, if you're not in an environment where you're, you know, so one, if you're not taught how to think critically, especially when it comes to religious things or political things, if you're not thinking that way, um, it's going to be easy to, it'll be easier to be drawn into those, those types of arguments. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose, especially if somebody's new to religion as well, I mean, like we're talking about converts now, um, mm-hmm. because they're not so confident in the religion itself and they want to appear to be, you know, taking it seriously uh, in a way, their reaction to that is be- to become even more sort of, uh, extremely religious, aren't they? The zeal of the convert, I think the expression is. Yeah, that, that is there, that exists. And, and because if you think about it, um, right, you're, there's a certain, um, you're rejecting something on, mm. on some level, right? If, especially if you've rejected the dominant religion, um, or secularism that you were raised with, you're rejecting something and you're latching on maybe uncritically to what you're latching on to. So that does happen. I'd say from a personal standpoint, I actually would say, uh, I don't have the scientific data to back this up, but from sort of anecdotal personal experience, yeah. you know, those first three years of being a convert, three to, to maybe even five, but really those first, you know, couple of years, um, you're usually going to be exposed to, um, you know, you're for Muslim converts, you know, you're going to be exposed to a lot of information. Those first three years, I think, are, are very critical. I think people find they're, they're often influenced by by whoever is the most prominent, whatever voice. Mm. Um, my experience is a little bit different because I went through this in the 90s, late 90s, um, when the internet was not 
the thing (laughs) to get your influence, right? Um, So I saw it on the more hard copy level, right? When I became, when I converted to Islam and in the the late 90s, you know, I would go around, of course, I would see a lot of Salafi propaganda, going to bookstores, uh, Salafist material, um, which was probably more prevalent, right? Mm. It was more prevalent than than other, other perspectives on Islam. It was because, I mean, that's a whole history there, right? Why was there so much Salafi information and and religious literature being uh, propagated in the 90s Mm. um you know that's a whole other topic but so that impact would impact a person now we could ask the question today which is how are converts uh converts to islam where are they getting their information what is the most prevalent in the media right then you have to think about social media what is circulating so obviously this is going to impact people but those first three years i think you know it's very easy to you know for me my 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 thing from a to give you a little personal tidbit um i converted i was in california um, I was in Northern California at school, converted, then I went to Southern California, and then I went away for a year. Uh, I was a, a Fulbright scholar to Ghana. And so I went, you know, soon as after, after I converted, and my conversion was a very sort of personal process. It wasn't, you know, I didn't join a group, but I mean, it was just like very personal, uh, you know, my exploration of the Quran and, and, and religious scripture. That was, that was key. And then I, I left and I went outside the country. I actually visited London um, at the time because I had family there. And I spent a year in West Africa. Um, when I was in West Africa, I made the Hajj. Uh, so I went to Saudi Arabia, had that experience. And the common thing was I noticed all these differences in the Muslim you know, I don't like to use the term Muslim world, but with within Muslim countries around the world and, and Muslim populations, I noticed the difference between the West African Muslims in Ghana uh, and the Muslims in Saudi Arabia. Um, so I got to see that Islam was not one monolithic thing mm-hmm. in my my early my early first year, um, and then I moved back to the states. I moved to New York, and 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 I, I you know so I had already a different sense of what was possible with Islam, I think. And um, many people don't necessarily have that. And there were other things too, as I grew and, and the influence, I'd say, of, of my own family, my, my, my wife's family, because my wife, who's also African-American, but she's not a convert. She was raised as a, as a, as a Muslim in Boston. Um, you know, so she had a certain experience in her family. So here I was marrying someone. I, I married a, a, a two, three years after I converted roughly. And I'm married to a family that, you know, they're Muslim, they're African, you know, my wife mm. is Muslim and African-American and she's a Muslim American. There's no, this, there wasn't this dichotomy um, b- between being Muslim and being American. So that really impacted me as a young convert um as a new convert so you know having what's very key is having elements within the community that can see this and and can help people through the process to have i think a balanced understanding of the religion um that doesn't happen just by happenstance you know especially with the the internet so um it's really key to to look at what's going on. This is internally within our communities, within Muslim communities, um, so that when people are exposed to think to these things, because the internet's not going away, and 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 Salafi propaganda and jihadist 
propaganda isn't going away. Um, you know, that's the way of the world. You have any ideology, every ideology that, that whether it's good or, 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 or reckless is, is present. So we have to give people, um, the skills to think critically and to be exposed to another, what I would say is another mission, a bigger mission. It's more than just, we can't just say, um, terrorism is bad. So don't listen to these, uh, you know, some don't listen to Anwar al laki tapes. Um, you know, terrorism is bad and, um, you know, Muslims have to be peaceful, right? That's, so that's okay. That's a, that's an important message, but is that going to counter when someone is calling you to this bigger mission, when they're calling to you to a duty, um, a duty that's bound by your faith? So I, I think the, the only way you're going to defeat that, and this is why it, it can't just happen by, um, tactical means, um, and kinetic means, how are you going to, compete with that. So there has to be, there have to be other alternative, um, uh, object, other alternative narratives that don't just say terrorism is bad and this is not what Islam is, but alternative narratives that sort of intrinsically within themselves point out that the mission of a Muslim is to do, you know, is to do good, is to, it, it, to exalt human character. That is a mission, you know, to bring, the, to raise up the human intellect, to, to have a social life which is in tune with the nature of, 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 of the world, of, of, of the universe, as a Muslim would say, as, as God has created, right? God creating the universe upon a pattern, and you have to keep your nature within that. And that nature is one of, you know, submitting to God. I mean, these are like high, you know, high principles that that I found when I came into Islam. And these principles could be used to, to raise above the dialogue and the thinking of Boko Haram, of Al-Qaeda, of ISIS. I mean, these things are much higher, but, um, but, but that's, a, that's a whole other effort that, that the Muslim community has to do. So this is a, it's a really big struggle. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It is. Well, this, so in your opinion, what do you think Muslims and non-Muslims are getting wrong about Islam and counterterrorism? Because this debate is very complicated and it becomes quite toxic. And I've seen, you know, um, you, you know, you could have got the far right in one level trying to paint all Muslims as terrorists. And then you've got the far left who are kind of sharing platforms with extremists and things like that. And then, you know, what are we getting? What are people getting right and wrong about this debate? Well, I think I can talk about it from a Muslim perspective and not for Muslims and non-Muslims, not to categorize, but for simplicity's sake. Mm. Um one, uh, I think Muslims, we have to disconnect our thinking about terrorism and counterterrorism from what is being provoked in the media and political discourse. And that is hard, I know, right? Your typical everyday person is going to turn on the news, whether it's BBC or whether it's CNN or whether it's Fox, whatever it is, you know, they're going to hear about this. They're going to hear about the subject of terrorism mostly from pundits and, and from, or from politicians. And, and that realm is filled with so much, you know, um, uh, you know, provocative uh, dialogue and debate that I don't think you can really understand terrorism if that's your reference point, you know, and if you're focused on terrorism is a very sort of specific, again, terrorism is not about Islam. Terrorism is a specific type of activity. So to understand it, I think if you're a Muslim, you have to kind of get away. I actually tell people to turn off the news and to turn off their social media news feeds when they're thinking about uh, what, what terrorism is. So there has to be a raising up of 
the IQ level on terrorism. And I think that means from, you know, from I guess from Muslims and non-Muslims, you know, getting information from more scholarly perspectives. Like if you're going to understand, like here's the thing, when, when there's a, let's say there's a news show and it's terrorism, terrorism is an issue, right? The Muslim who may be involved in that dialogue may be a Muslim who doesn't really know about terrorism, right? And countering terrorism, like countering terrorism is a specific, is a field. So if you're, if you're talking about terrorism, but you've never, you've never been involved in a counter, in counterterrorism analysis or a counterterrorism operation, right? So even that being a representative of Muslims who's out there talking about this critical issue, there's something missing. And what's missing is we need more of this, uh, an internal voice. So my contention is I think Muslims have to take ownership of counterterrorism. Um, it's, it's not, it, because if you're going to see counterterrorism as an effort to undermine Islam and undermine the faith, then there's no room there, right? There's no, there's no room for you, for you to really play in it. I don't see it that way. And that's based on being in the, you know, being within counterterrorism circles. Um, are there people who, who have bigoted views against, about Muslims who are in counterterrorism? Yes. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean the principle of counterterrorism is something that is un-Islamic. And, and I didn't observe, I don't, I don't assess that the U.S. or the U.K.'s or, you know, the, the, or, or Jordan's, I don't assess that, uh, or Saudi Arabia's, you know, that their counterterrorism strategy and, and policy is to get rid of Islam or to, to, to demean Islam. So that's, that's one thing. So we have to get a clear understanding. We need, I think, uh, Muslim voices who aren't operating from a defensive standpoint. If you're operating from a defensive standpoint, trying to defend your faith, um, you know, intellectually or in, you know, in debating others, you're not going to be able to objectively look at the threat of terrorism. Um, so that's the thing. And for non-Muslims in terms of what are we getting right and wrong, I think, you know, based on what I mentioned about there not being an intern, a Muslim voice sort of, um, not just speaking, but demonstrating what it is to counter terrorism because there's not, you know, who can you point to from a, as a practicing Muslim or religious Muslim involved in counterterrorism? They're out there, but that image is not really present for people. So I think people who are not Muslim maybe have to, you know, it has to be reinforced for them that um, religiosity within Islam is not necessarily a, um, uh, a a link to terrorism. And that even though, as I just mentioned, religion can be this vehicle for uh, violent extremism, religion can also be a vehicle for the solution. Uh, in some ways. And I'm not saying that there's one solution. So, so, you know, we have to really rethink how we're going about it. And we have to de sort of detract um, and disentangle a lot of the political discourse, because I'm telling you, if you're going to, if you're paying attention to what's in your newsfeed and all the, you know, conspiracy theories that are out there and just the bad news, you know, about what Islam is. I mean, if you're consuming that, I mean, good luck. It's going to be hard to to for us to solve this problem if that's your mindset on either side. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there's there's so much there's so much nonsense out there about so many elements of this whole area we're talking about, from conspiracy theories about the government to to religion. Yeah. 
Yeah, and if and one thing, if I could, can I mention one sort of story? Because I know I've said so many things which are just like, oh, everything was was great at the the CIA and all that. That's that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that. Um, uh, well, let me give let me give an example of of uh, how we should deal with the mindset. And this relates to Muslims and non-Muslims. I mean, I remember. Uh, one time I was walking through the parking lot, the CIA agency parking lot, and I saw a license plate and the license plate said infidel. Um, and I guess this is a trend. I'm seeing more of this out here. I was at Home Depot, which is a big, you know, uh, you guys have Home Depot in the UK? We have something similar. Yeah. Something similar, yeah. Right? So, so I was at Home Depot and I'm walking with my son <laughs> and, uh, and there's this guy walking out of Home Depot, and he has in Arabic, you know, in Arabic letters, it says uh, kafir. Um, and I, I don't remember if it was translated. The translation of that is disbeliever or infidel mm. um, on his shirt. And my son is like, what, what, why does he have a shirt that says infidel and, and kafir? <laughs> you know, so what is this? This is like people, unfortunately, are latching on to the jihadist narrative yeah. who are not Muslim. And are like embracing it as the as the struggle. And I, I, you know, on one level, I I get where they're coming from, um, but you, what that does is you're in fact embracing uh, this ideology that paints you and me as bitter enemies. Mm. Um, so so we have to we have to think about what we embrace um, as we are um, you know as we're as we're dealing with this threat and. When I saw that at the, you know, the agency parking lot, um, I didn't like that, right? Um, but what I kept in mind was what I what I was trying to do, what I was doing, and the fact that everyone wasn't like that. You know, everyone, you know, actually for for the most part, most people didn't have that view, and most people really, my coworkers, my my counterterrorism coworkers, you know, they. You know, they respected me. Um, I had great conversations again with you know conservative, uh, not necessarily conservative, but committed Catholics and committed Jews, as, as I mentioned, who talked about how much they respected Islam, respected Muslims, people who had traveled and traveling around the world, and um, had a certain amount of respect for for the Muslims that they engaged. So we have to get beyond these these um, uh, these polemics if mm. we're going to solve the problem. Mm. No, definitely, definitely. Um, just your story, brief. So kind of going a little bit off the road. Your story just reminded me of something. Um, there was this gun manufacturer, I think, last year in the states, putting like Bible passages on assault rifles. It was, yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's uh, you know, when I hear stories like that, I just, I, I, I mean, interestingly, I, I, I try not to let it. it because you could do a couple of things, right? I mean, you could, I, I, there's this, there's this, there's this, um, uh, there's this guideline in, in the Quran, actually, which is I, so appropriate, which is basically when you hear ignorance, right? People who are, are saying ignorant things. And, you know, this could be people who are talking about your religion, talking about your faith, bad things are saying about God. Um, when you see it or you hear it, <laughs> the reproach is just, you know, peace. 
<laughs> and you like go your other your own way because it's like I'm not I don't want to waste my breath and my time engaging someone and trying to say oh you know you, you should it's almost like this that ignorance you know if it comes across my newsfeed it's like okay I'm going somewhere else because if you get too drawn into that then as a Muslim I could think that my struggle is against that guy. And that's not the primary issue. That's something that uh, um, it's important. It's critical um, in terms of being civil. We need to, you know, there are people that are going to deal with that. I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't deal with, um, you know, making sure people feel secure in their identity and that we're civil with each other and that, you know, I, I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that what's missing is um, taking on directly the, ter the terrorist threat uh, uh, because many of us are so focused on this, the side issue, this distraction, which only plays into ISIS and only plays into the jihadist frame of reference and their, their way of thinking. So it's a tough ba balance, Chris. It, it definitely is. I see those things. I say peace and I move on and I'm about, you know, let me, you know, get, get about my business and get stuff done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good, pol good policy there. <laughs> I do feel we kind of covered this, but I wouldn't mind just asking it again, just because I'm sure there'll be something that will come up that we probably haven't mentioned. But um, what do you think Muslims and non-Muslims should or could be doing to undermine terrorist narratives? Well, I think what I haven't mentioned is a cultural strategy. You know, a cultural strategy. So I'm going to say something that might not be typical. I think that there actually should be, and, and it's great because I'm talking to a filmmaker. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, we could talk. Even though I've mentioned so much about religion and and, and the role it has, mm. really, what what motivates people day to day is culture, right? And culture Definitely. is what they see, what they listen to, what they hear, what they watch, what their friends are talking about. Yeah. Um, so, what could we do more? Um, it's great to have, uh, you know, sort of TV shows where people are debating. It's great to have uh, dialogue in Parliament and in Congress about uh, terrorism and radicalization and the policies that we need to enact. But you know what's left out? Um, the images that people see that impact them more through entertainment, through what they're listening to in music. I actually think that there should be more examples and more stories of um, Muslims involved in counterterrorism. And I'm not talking about making things up. I'm talking about what exists. I mean, if you think about ISIS, I mean, it's there, you know, Muslims are, are fighting, uh, fighting ISIS. You know, Muslims are Muslims are on the front lines to this. Uh, but this is not what you see. Right. So there's room for more uh, representation within our media and our culture that I think we should just be a little bit more balanced. Not balanced, should be more accurate. Yeah. Um, I, you know, um, the ability for there, I mean, think about what we have, you know, when some of the biggest shows that we've had about terrorism, you know, 24 and uh, Homeland and just, uh, you know, uh, you know, disclaimer, uh, you know, I, I, I don't really watch those shows. It's hard when you work in the Intel community sometimes to mm. watch shows, TV okay. shows okay. about the Intel community. Because <laughs> you're like, okay, no, that's not accurate. No, I'm not watching this show. But it must get very frustrating. I've met police officers who can't stand watching police drama. Exactly. <laughs> sure. Now I know how they feel, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I, I haven't watched all those shows, but 
I mean, you have a Jack Ryan and you have a, I forget the main character in Homeland. You know, you have these characters. Why shouldn't there be a, a leading, a Muslim character who's not just Muslim, not just the you know Muslim sidekick who you see, you know, every for 15 minutes. But how about the practicing Muslim? who prays, who fasts, you know, who has a family, who who is living their Islamic life and living a good mm. life, like any any, you know, faithful person or regular person in life yeah. who is who is a counterterrorism officer. You know, who mm. who doesn't see this as as a as a conflict. I mean, if we had I can't point to main characters like that when I know they exist in real life. Yeah. And so I think Muslims and non-Muslims, I think we should be looking for more of that. That could counter some of the ignorance that you're that that you mentioned. Um, uh, so so maybe we need to take our approach um, you know, to, to Hollywood and to, to media and to film to, to tell these stories. And then on a more personal level, right? Cause everyone's not going to be involved in media. Um, on a more personal level, everything always goes back to exposure and experience and talking to people. I always encourage people, you know, I find that in this world, if you want to find out about anything, whether it's Islam or Muslims, the the doors are open and there are people around you who, you know, I know when en- whenever anyone wants to reach out to me, I love talking about, uh, you know, my perspective or Islam. You know, I, th- I think we don't talk to each other. Uh, uh, I don't think we talk to people who are different than us. So being in the agency, being at the CIA and at NCTC, I really had the opportunity to talk to people um, in a very safe environment, right? Safe where there was no issue. I wasn't worried. They weren't worried about political rec- correctness. I wasn't worried about this or that. And, you know, I was able to talk to people. And I think we should, we don't have to be, um, separated uh, from each other. And then the more we have interpersonal dialogue and engagement, that might help us work together more. And mm. it might uh, make us m- uh, decrease some of the tension that's just out in society. I agree. No, I definitely agree. Um, how can non-Muslims better debate terrorism without falling for or feeding into far, far-right narratives that exist both in the US, UK and Europe? Yeah, well, hmm, what... what... I don't know, Chris, yeah. can you explain to me a little bit more about what you mean? What, what do this sort of Yeah, narrative? Yeah, so, um, like, far-right narrative. It, so a lot of people like to talk about the religious side of um, terrorism. And they kind of, a lot of people um, focus on that on sort of two levels. One, on one level, it's sort of like, oh, all Muslims secretly want to take over the world and do this, that, and the other. And then there are other people out there who... A kind of anti-religion and just want to use every example of every terrorist bombing as yet another example of why religion's bad and it's sort of um and so i suppose it's trying not to sort of fall into either of those things because it's like even our conversation there are probably elements that pe- certain people might want to latch onto here and there mm-hmm. and say oh that's evidence of this and i'm kind of like it's trying to find that way to have i suppose in a way i'm trying to ask is how can we find a as a as a person who you know is not a Muslim myself? You know, how can we find this way to have a balanced conversation about terrorism without kind of letting it go off into really silly places? Mm. You know, it, it and it's I, I'm not sure if it's something that non-Muslims can do alone in the sense of you know there's not a way to at least I I, I can't think of it right now where I can say. Um, you know, you, you, you know, people should do this or speak this way. I, I, I think it relates to the idea of, you know, what examples 
and frames of reference do we have that are out there mm. that that don't fall into those things, right? Mm. Um, I would say, so for example, um, it's just understanding the maybe understanding the Muslim community, uh, particularly in the West, understanding it a little bit better um, and having other references. And I'll give you a perfect example. Um, so here's, here's a, there's a historical development in the U.S. that I can talk about that when I, whenever I share it, people are like uh, surprised that they never knew about it. Mm. So I'll explain this one. Um this actually is connected to 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 my family, my my wife's family. So, in the you're aware of the the group, the Nation of Islam, and the the you know sixties and seventies, Malcolm yeah. X, that whole sort of thing, right? Um, so, without getting too personal, um, you know, there in 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 the seventies, a lot of people don't know that when that group, the leader of that group, when Elijah Muhammad died. Uh, his, uh, most of that community, these were mainly African-American Muslims. And of course they were practicing something that wasn't the, the sort of the mainstream understanding of Islam, right? Obviously, um, most of the people who, who, uh, after his, the leader's death, they actually, um, followed his son in sort of support and leadership. And at that time, this was in 1975, that community became, I would say, a perfect example of counter-extremism. Because what happened is that community, these were mainly, you know, African-American Muslims, um, dis, you know, internally without influence from sort of foreign, you know, sheikhs or anything like that, started to transition from that, uh, the ideology they had to a an identity of being a Muslim American with no tension in that identity. So what the leader at the time, so the son of Elijah Muhammad, Wallace Muhammad, Wallace D. Muhammad, also known as Warith Dean Muhammad, uh, basically you know, told his followers that, you know what, Islam is not what you guys, what, what has been taught. And that um, it, it, looking at the place we are in the world, as American Muslims, we actually should be, we should be proud of our Americanness, even though there, there's this history of racism, right? But America has changed over the decades. There's, there's actually opportunity to live a good life as a Muslim within this country, so we should support it. So in the decades that followed through the seven, late 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, and close to this day, um, that community sprouted Muslims in civic life, um, the first Muslim who was a staffer for the White House working directly for the president was a Muslim American woman, was an African American woman that came from this community. And this was under Jimmy Carter. People don't know this existed. Um, so when I became Muslim in my first few years, I really sort of became exposed, especially after I met my, my wife. I, get ex I was really impressed with how my wife and her family were balanced Muslims, balanced Muslim Americans. And so when you see in society like today, you have, you know, the first two African, the first two Muslim congressmen are African-American Muslims. Um, coming from that. Why? It didn't just happen out of nowhere. It happened because you actually had people who had seen themselves as American and Muslim and had, had been doing interfaith before interfaith activity, before all of this became um, sort of popular after 9-11. Most people, had, you know, so many Muslims had pointed to this 
um, community is not being authentic and not being true Muslims because, you know, uh, uh, Imam Warthin Muhammad was meeting with Jews and meeting with mm -hmm. Christians, mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, was saying that Muslims should be join the military and should, you know, fight. This is in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, but what did the media do? The media actually focused on a small splinter group um, uh, from Farrakhan. Farrakhan sort of revitalized the nation of Islam um, separately, mm. and he didn't have many followers. Most of the followers that were in the original nation of Islam followed in Warthi Muhammad. Why this long story about this sort of this group? What I found is that it was that influence that made me open to joining the intel community. Yeah. It was that because I was sort of raised, not raised, but I sort of identified with that. This is before 9-11. So I already had a sense in my identity that there's not this dichotomy. So I say that to say that I don't think non-Muslims know the story of Muslims in the West. Um, of course, I'm talking about a specific American, but I know that there are stories like this. I don't think people know the history of, of Muslims in Britain. And the, the, you know the the wide array of, of 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 Brits who engaged Islam and and there are all these stories where religion. I actually think the problem is that you know if you're you know if you already see religion as being something for you know backwards and it's you know, it's it's prone to extremism, you know you know there are lots of examples I think people should look at where that's not the case. Um, so if you have, and I would say perhaps my former count, my counterterrorism analysts that work with me, perhaps they have a real life example, not just me, but the other Muslims they worked with. They can point to people who exemplified what, what I'm talking about and what we're talking about. So I think maybe it's getting to know some of these stories, learning more, because this is the stories I'm telling that I'm sharing aren't known so much in the mainstream, not broadly, um, outside of the Muslim community. So I think if if non-Muslims maybe get a little bit more educated about the Muslim experience in the West in particular, you may get a sense that, oh, you know what, this is, you know, we live in a pluralistic society. This is not, uh, Islam is is just one one part of the pluralistic society that we live in, and it does not have to be antithetical to democracy. It doesn't have to be uh, against pluralism. It doesn't even have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be that, that if you're a secular, if you don't, you're atheist, right? It doesn't mean that um, you're an enemy uh, for a Muslim, that a Muslim, you know, has to, has to fight against you. So I think getting exposed to those voices who do voice this alternative, uh, who express this alternative might help just psychologically so that you, that not you personally, but, you know, so that the people who do want to talk about terrorism, they come from a place of being confident. But if you, if you don't know these stories that in your mind, you might think, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe there, there's a little point to it or maybe, you know, so I think being exposed knowledge, um, and familiarity with, with the Muslim experience uh, should help. So one, you know, there's one issue where I think people don't know, you know where to get information about terrorism, um, you know, because you have all these, you know, weird, wacky websites. You either have the, the sort of wacky websites, you know, Muslims are all terrible and they're all terrorists, right? <laughs> and they're all lurking behind you, ready to infiltrate you and everything. And every mosque is, you know, is uh, is uh, is uh, is, uh, is going after you, is a terrorist. And, and or you have 
you know, information which is just, you know, um, oh, it's, you know, the main problem is Islamophobia and, uh, you know, you have this sort of other um, extreme which is, which doesn't look at terrorism objectively or from a scholarly perspective. And I don't use Islamophobia, by the way, because my sense is, it, you know, I don't think people, well, anyway, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> but, um, but, um, so, so I think people are sort of getting their understanding from ter about terrorism from these types of sources. But I would recommend, you know, uh, like I, I was saying, you know, more scholarly uh, studies of terrorism, because if you want to talk about terrorism, you should understand these groups and how they've developed their evolution and, and how they're spreading. What's the message they're giving? Right. So you have things like um, the the you have the long war journal. That's a that's a, a source um, that that provides analysis and research on terrorist developments, terrorist attacks. You have the CTC Sentinel, right? Um, which is the CTC is the Combating Terrorism Center put out by West Point, and they their Sentinel has I think it's every month or so uh, articles on on the developments of uh, within terrorism. You know, so you, you know. It, Instead of just looking at the latest attack and the, 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 the news cycle based on attacks, you know, look for just Google scholarly sources on terrorism um, and identify uh, better sources where if you really want to learn about what's happening, because the thing I found about uh, that really became clear to me when I became a not only joined the CIA, but a counterterrorism analyst, the big thing I understood was how many people who are intelligent. Most, you know, Muslims who are intelligent um, really believe that 9-11, you know, 9-11 didn't happen or 9-11 was, uh, quote unquote, an inside job. Um, you know, uh, you know, all these sort of conspiracy theories and that, you know, this a bunch of this stuff is all sort of made up. Well, you can think that way if you don't have reference where you can actually maybe look at the sources that people are saying or, or read through the arguments. That's why I say scholarly information about terrorism. So I had to personally tell people, you know, this stuff is not made up, you know, nine 11. Yeah. It was an attack. It was, that was, that was plotted um, by Al Qaeda and carried out by, by Al Qaeda. Um, so that you're not quick whenever there is an attack to just say, oh, this is, you know, this is the West trying because the West wants oil. The West is just, you know, propagating this. That's not what's happening. And ask, you know, ask the, the, the thousands of people who have died around the world in Muslim countries who are dying because of attacks um, by groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda and others. Uh, this stuff is very, very real. So I would really point people towards more uh, scholarly sources if they want to get a sense of of terrorism and counterterrorism. Thank you for saying that because I mean like conspiracy theories are so prevalent on the internet and they've almost borderline become mainstream on the internet. Um, yeah. And I'm actually going to be doing a conspiracy special in the future. <laughs> but uh, there's a whole other, um, uh, 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 the listeners can hear more about that another time. But. Uh, <laughs> Well, we're going to tackle conspiracy theories, but you, uh, <laughs> you have a UFO panel, or <laughs> I better stop saying you UFO because people—that's you know, a problem. People are actually going to think there's a thing. <laughs> yeah, they're going to think you have to hide. I keep mentioning UFOs. <laughs> so you have to have nothing to hide about UFOs, do you? <laughs> <laughs> nothing. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's good. Um, so we're, we're wrapping up now. <laughs> yeah. Um. You've now left the CIA, but you've not left the fight against terrorism and terrorist narratives. So what is important to you now? Um, you know, so there are two levels, right? I mean, there's on the professional and 
and personal. I mean, professional, professionally, I mean, in my, my day-to-day work, I actually work, um, uh, you know, I work at a think tank, uh, uh, which deals with, um, illicit finance and national security. And one of the things that I, I face on a day-to-day basis, uh, is, terrorism finance. So, you know, I do research on uh, how terrorists are uh, raising money um, and and illicit finance and how that impacts national security. So that sort of that, you know, keeps me in tune with uh, with what I was doing for for years at the CIA. Um, So that's one thing. On a, on a personal level, uh, last year I started something which is, uh, I think hopefully uh, will help this effort to, to provide new narratives and new stories. So I, I started a podcast. Um, so I'm a podcaster myself, as I think you mentioned. Um, so I started a podcast called Rhythm of Wisdom. And it's, it's interestingly, I call it a, a hip hop storytelling podcast, but it's more than that. It's basically, um, a collection of stories, stories that, uh, for the most part, stories I've, I've written. That's real life stories. So accounts, um, of, of starting with my life and, and what I've done and, and how I got to where I, where I am and my experiences in Islam, my experience, um, joining the CIA and being a counterterrorism analyst. So I talk, uh, uh, that comes out within the podcast. The aim of the podcast is to provide this cultural alternative. I think the, you know, we're inundated with so many, you know, cookie cutter, messages which are negative about Islam, which are simplistic about terrorism and counterterrorism. So I'm, this podcast aims to provide, um, a fuller picture. Uh, and I think this will, you know, hopefully help impact the culture, the culture that you, that, that we've been talking about. Um, we need something. And for me to do a podcast is, is part of that. Um, so I'd like to see more of that. So my, my podcast is, is my effort to shift the culture and to provide unique a unique way of looking at some of these issues. Thanks. I've really enjoyed your podcast, and um, I will just say to listeners that um, we, we could probably get more detail about your time in the CIA from the first two episodes. It's, uh, <laughs> it's really good. That's I like it. The way it's set to music and things are brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's why I said I, I really like your theme. I'm, I really key in on, on theme music. So I'll have, so. To do a, I'll have to do a special at some point where I can figure <laughs> out how to do it, where we get some appropriate music to go through the whole episode. <laughs> Because I do like the way you do that. But um, thank you so much for taking the time for chatting with me today. Um, where can listeners find out more about you and, and what you do? I think probably the best way is uh, on Twitter. So I, on Twitter, my Twitter handle is is unique. It's sign at sign curve, and that's sign spelled S-I-G-N curve. Uh, so that's where I am. But also the, the podcast has its own Twitter uh, Twitter account at rhythm of wisdom, all one word, obviously rhythm of wisdom. And I would just say, you know, best thing to do is to, to, to follow me or, and, and subscribe, uh, t- to the podcast itself. I mean, rhythm of wisdom is on, we're on iTunes and also on SoundCloud. So that's probably the, the, the quickest way, uh, for folks to, you know, connect with me and to hear some of these stories directly, um, and let us know what they think about them. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me today. And um, yeah, I look forward to sharing this interview soon. 
Oh, great. Me too. And you've been doing a great job. I really uh, have enjoyed the episodes I've listened to so far. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's been, yeah, it's been a great journey doing these podcasts. It's been really good fun. And um, I'm meeting some fascinating people, which has been great, including yourself. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank, thank you as well. I really appreciate it. If you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast.